Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 541, All the Rows of the Vineyard. Are we putting our faith in the wrong things? Why are people leaving the Western church? And is it possible to have too many nice people in the church? We're going to answer these questions and more as we continue our study of Matthew chapter 21. Hello again, everyone. Good to be back together this week on this long series as we're doing a really deep dive into the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at three living parables where uh, the first was the triumphal entry, then Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, and then the fig tree. Um, After he acted out these living parables— The religious leaders directly question his authority, but it's interesting. He refuses to interact with them, to to answer their question directly. Instead, he responds with a question of his own that he knows they won't answer because it was about the legitimacy of John the Baptist's ministry. So after this exchange, he moves straight into uh, telling three parables that are addressed to them in response to this challenge. Now, Matthew has grouped the three parables together to show the obstinacy of the Jewish leaders, and each one of these parables is progressively more confrontational. All three of them have this in common. They focus on the failure of the Jerusalem leadership to respond to God's call. The parables go on to to explore the consequences of this failure. All three parables point to a radical and unexpected reversal of roles. It would have been a, a great surprise, almost a shock to these Jewish leaders. And in doing this, they raise a troubling issue about how Israel relates to the people of God in the future. So let's look at them. The first is the parable of the two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I'll go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, Well, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Now, many of the church fathers and the early church understood this as a parable about the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, and then after that initial rejection, a later obedience to him. But another interpretation is that this is a parable of the kingdom, which is like an imperfect family. In yet another interpretation, the two sons are two groups of people in Israel, those to whom the father first came are the despised outcast in society. This first group ignored God's call to them and said, I will not. But then, under the preaching of John the Baptist, they changed. They repented. We're back to that word of metanoia. 
Now, today you're going to see several times through these parables that I present different interpretations. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is to reinforce in us that there is, of course, the literal reading, the moral reading, and the spiritual or water-to-wine reading. And I want to reinforce that there isn't one right spiritual reading, that, that, that the parables, as all scripture, especially in the Gospels, are so multi-layered that there is, there's an awful lot of very different interpretations that are waiting for us there. So let's go back to the parable. Son, go and work in the vineyard today. So we have three successive parables about vineyards going back to chapter 20 two weeks ago. And now we have two vineyard parables. The vineyard was always understood as a metaphor for God's purposes for Israel. And, and the, there's many examples, but the most classic is Isaiah chapter 5. And as we look at that, it gives us both the background and provides an interpretive key for these next two parables. So Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 4. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? One of the interpretive keys for the parables today is that to work in the vineyard equals engaging in God's purposes. Now, this parable, Jesus is pointing out the inconsistency of the Jewish leader's behavior. He's also pointing out their failure to fulfill their God-given role as leaders and shepherds of Israel. Now, although the second son spoke respectfully, Oh, I will go, sir, but he did not go. He never really went to work in the vineyard. And Jesus is focusing on the leaders with that part of the story. St. Hilary said, The leaders put their faith in the law and despised repentance from sin, glorying instead in the noble prerogative that they had from Abraham. So I've got a question for us today. Are we like them in that we put our faith in external measurements? Do we put our faith in good church attendance, um, in serving in the church? Do we put our faith in our Christian pedigree for those of us who, who come from several generations of believers? These parables apply to us. Verse 31 and 32, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. 
John Christostom said this, Thus he mentioned here both harlots and publicans that they might provoke them to jealousy. Jesus is being incredibly confrontational here and very purposely. Now, there's a question that that we might want to ponder. Is this story about the tax gatherers and the prostitutes who were entering the kingdom during Jesus' ministry? Or is it a look ahead? Is it a prophetic look to a time when they will proceed ahead of his Jewish listeners in the end-time kingdom? In either case, the parable is directed clearly toward the high priests and elders. It's not addressed to the whole Jewish nation. This is his response to when they confronted him. So that's who he's talking to. Now, tax collectors and prostitutes are the two groups that the religious leaders would most despise. Um, Instead of reaching out, they stayed away from them, and they thank God that they're not like them. Remember the the parable in Luke 18 with the the Pharisee, Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this tax gatherer. You see, for them, these two groups of people, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, they had no place in respectable Jewish society. Therefore, the religious leaders just assumed that they had no place in the kingdom of God. Let me briefly tell you a short version of a story. In a church that we had planted quite a long time ago, uh, over 20 years ago, somebody in our church began to go downtown and reach out to the girls working on the street, and she built a real relationship with one of them. And that that girl had a couple of kids, and she ended up having to go into recovery and had no place to take her kids. So this gal from our church uh, took care of them and brought them to Sunday school. They'd never been to anything like Sunday school. And... Uh, that went on for a couple of weeks, and they just loved it. They would sit on the step in front of the house waiting to get picked up. So eventually this gal, uh, who had had been working on the streets since she was, before she was a teenager, if you can imagine, uh, she was curious, and so she came to church. She'd never been to church. And when she came, she didn't know how to dress. She She was dressed rather provocatively. Um, she, uh, you know, she was smoking just before the service. She went out to smoking and whatever. She was living life as she knew it. And it was one of the happiest days of my life as a pastor that our church members did nothing but receive and embrace her. Nobody said, you know, you shouldn't really smoke. Nobody said, you know, you really should dress a little more modestly. Nobody said anything like that. They just included her. And so she came back and she came back. And in this atmosphere of acceptance, she met Jesus. And 20 years, more than 20 years later, not only is she a a, a devout and faithful follower of Christ, but God has used her past to impact internationally other people. So 
I just want to say this. If our churches are going to reflect Jesus and his gospel, then we need to look for tax collectors and prostitutes, as he said in that verse. We need to look for those sinners, those social outcasts, to be in our midst. Look around our congregations. Are they there? Are we welcoming? Because if we are, then we're following the Jesus way. So going back to our parable, when Jesus speaks about them, uh, the religious leaders not coming into uh, the kingdom, but that it's, it's these folks that are going to get there first. This is a radical, radical pronouncement. For Matthew, everything depends on really doing the Father's will. That second son who said, yes, I'll do it. He knew the right things to say, but he didn't go. Everything for Matthew, all the way through his gospel, depends on doing the Father's will. Listening to good preaching, talking well about the gospel, can actually brainwash us into believing that, that to believe the right thing is the same as doing the right thing. Last week, a good friend of mine, uh, in his city, it went to minus 30. And so he, he went on Facebook. He said, I'm going to go out, uh, you know, in the next half hour, I'm going to go out and we're going to get some hot food and soup and so forth to the homeless that are being allowed to stay in a bus station. And what he got was an immediate response. Not only people saying, I can't come, but here's money. And in 20 minutes, he had $400 for food and hot drink. But the most interesting thing he said was he had a bunch of people who no longer go to church saying, can we come too? I mean, he had a few of them saying, can we come too right now? Because we're tired of more and more talk. He told me some of them have stopped going to church. We want to do something. Jesus said, go and do likewise in the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. This parable is directed against teaching that tells people that having the right set of beliefs is the way to salvation. Remember the sheep and the goats. We're going to go there in a few weeks. In fact, I'm delighted to say that our dear friend uh, Brad Jerzak is going to teach on that section because it's just an area of great expertise for him. But in Matthew 25, the famous parable of the sheep and the goats, the criterion was not right doctrine. It was acts of mercy. I believe, folks, that this is the number one reason that the Western church now has more people who have left than who have stayed. It's because of a passive faith that does not change our world. Participating actively in the vineyard, remember the purposes of the Father for the world, is what is needed in our churches. What counts is obedience, actual performance of God's desires, not lip service. That's what this parable is shouting to us. You know, a a separation of believing and doing is a distortion of the gospel. And this parable confronts it head on. Just some questions to think about. How did we gradually come to value ideas 
more than actually putting Jesus' work words into action. How did we get in our churches an emphasis on listening to teaching? And that's the end, full stop. By the way, there's something else in this parable that the, the older son who says, I'm not going to go, and then he does, reminds us that sometimes initial responses are not the ultimate responses, and so we need to deal with people with grace. The second parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, starting at verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they were treated in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, Ha! This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, that's the religious leaders he's speaking to, they said to him, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. There's only three parables that show up in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and this is one of them. Now, it's usually understood as a symbolic account of the history of Israel, whose leaders have rejected God's earlier prophetic messengers, including John the Baptist, and they are now on the point of rejecting Jesus. When they said, let's murder the son, it represents the soon coming execution of Jesus. John Christostom said this, this parable suggests many things. God's providence had been at work toward them from the outset. God had not turned away from this people, but had sent them his very son. It is now clear the God of both the New and the Old Testaments is one and the same. The meaning of going into a far country is God's great patience. I love that. I think that's quite an insight. So, what do we see here? Matthew continues with what he's done all the way through this gospel. He emphasizes fruit to describe what the owner requires of his tenants. We've seen it in chapter 3, 7, 12, 13, fruitfulness. 
Matthew is saying that when our hearts are changed, there's fruit in our lives. Our actions change. Let's look just briefly at at, uh, verse 33, uh, because there's several symbols there. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, again, I'm, I'm wanting to emphasize the water-to-wine readings to teach us to read slowly, carefully, contemplatively as we read the scriptures, Lord, what are you saying? And here we have an example of how some of the church fathers saw different spiritual meanings in the various components uh, of the parable. St. Ephraim, he protected it with a hedge, which is the law, and prepared a pit in it for a wine press, which is the altar, and built a tower there, which is the temple. St. Cyril said, the farm was given to other farmers. Who were they? I answered the company of the holy apostles, the preachers of the evangelical commandments, the ministers of the new covenant. St. Ambrose, the people of Christ then is correctly named a vineyard. Its fruit is gathered in the last season of the year. It may also be called a vineyard because there is equal measurement in the church of God for the rich and the poor, humble and powerful, servants and masters. There is no difference in the church, just as in all the rows of the vineyard. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. If you read this carefully, you'll see that this is one of the clearest claims Jesus ever made uh, about himself, that he was the unique son of God, different from all those who went before him. And this is the climax of the story. Jesus' death is the culminating act of rebellion against God. Verse 39, so they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. It's significant to me that the son was killed outside the camp. Among other things, this parable is prophetic. Jesus knew what the religious leaders did to John the Baptist, and he knew what they were going to do to him. Folks, I believe there's all kinds of applications here, but following Jesus at some point, point in the journey is going to put you and I outside the camp. I have experienced this on multiple times. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, just like the son in this story was thrown out of the vineyard and then killed. Verse 40 and 41, now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, again, this is the religious leaders, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Many interpret the coming of the Father, which is the Lord, as the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, that Jesus was prophesying this. You know, Matthew presents us here with a great irony. It's the religious leaders who pronounced their own sentence. He he structured this very carefully. 
And now we come to really, really important verses, 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. We have several things to say here. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. As I told you a few weeks ago, that that was the final of the halal psalms. They were songs of uh, psalms of great celebration as pilgrims marched into um, Jerusalem. Um, it was sung at all the festivals. So Jesus was very wise in quoting this in this context, because from now on, whenever the people would hear this this psalm, which would happen at all the festivals they would be reminded of this teaching. This quote, I think, is the key to understanding the parable. Because Jesus takes the meaning of this halal and turns it on its head. No no Jewish listener would identify himself or herself with the wicked tenants. They would expect the tenants to be the outsiders, the unrighteous, especially the Romans. Not until this stone quotation would the meaning of the parable become clear. And it was probably quite a shock to the listeners. This passage is central to both the story and to Jesus' ministry. So there's four aspects to this stone. First of all, it is the stone that the builders rejected. The father will vindicate his son, the one who's been rejected by the Jewish leaders. Secondly, the idea of a mighty stone or rock that people will stumble over if they walk into it, perhaps hurting themselves. And and, and when I read this, I think back to Paul's testimony when, uh, when he encountered Christ and he said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goats. What, what, this, what this verse is saying is that, that and, and what Jesus is saying is that we're going to hurt ourselves if we kick against this gospel. However, if this rock falls on the people, rather than falling on it, they'll be crushed. I want to give you a little bit of Old Testament background here, because there are at least three significant allusions here. Listen closely to them. First, from Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against, for both houses of Israel will become uh, a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isaiah 28, 16, see, I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. That is absolutely messianic. That is pointing directly to Christ. And then a passage that's spoken to me for many years. I remember it was one of the first ones in the Old Testament that really grabbed me as a young man. 
Daniel chapter 2. And um, I'll start at verse 34. A stone was cut out. He is, he is describing a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, can you tell me what my dream was? And he tells him. And as part of that, Daniel says this. A stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. These uh, iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold are different kingdoms that would rise up. But the stone that struck the statue itself became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. All of these scriptures about the rock, the stone, would have been well known by the religious leaders, and for that matter, by most of the people. Jesus therefore says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. You see, he's hammering with these three different parables. He's hammering a profound, strong truth. The old tenants, they lost their place because they did not produce fruit. This is one of the most important verses in Matthew. The kingdom of God will be taken away and given, Jesus says, to a new nation that is completely new. It's a, it's a, it's a new identity. It's a new organism. It's the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the major characteristic of this nation, this church, will be fruitfulness. Remember, this is a vineyard parable, doing God's will and bearing fruit, which is his will. With Jesus quoting Psalm 118, now it's crystal clear to the religious leaders that this parable is a confrontation, especially true for the temple authorities. Now that Jesus had entered Jerusalem— we see that increasingly through Holy Week, he's confronting not only the religious leader's inability and refusal to recognize who he is and what God is doing, he is also confronting abuse among the leaders. We're going to see in a chapter or two from now when he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance you make long prayers. I want to take a little branch on the road here. Something that I, in my studying, I found out that I had never known before. Um, in all four of the Gospels, in that last week, what we call Holy Week, uh, we see an almost feverish attack uh, and rage against Jesus by the top Jewish temple leaders. Um, they viciously attack Jesus during his trial. They, they spit on him. They strike him. They stir up the crowd to call for his execution. Now, I have always seen this as purely demonic, and certainly it is that. But in studying for this 
teaching today, I've discovered there was another reason for the high priest. Uh, Annas or Ananias, one is Greek and one is Hebrew, and Caiaphas. Because they're always at the center of this, Ananias and Caiaphas. And, and so there's a reason why they so feverishly opposed Jesus. And now I'm going to quote from an essay from numerous rabbinic traditions coupled with the testimony of Josephus. He was a contemporary of Jesus, a, a historian. From the rabbinic tradition and the testimony of Josephus, we may conclude that the high priesthood was a lucrative business, maybe the most lucrative in the land, and that some of the families at the end of the Second Temple period, which, by the way, is from when they come back from the Babylonian exile right through to A.D. 70 when the temple is, is collapsed. So it's, it's those 600 years. Um, Let me back it up. (laughs) We may conclude that the high priesthood was a lucrative business, maybe the most lucrative in the land, and that some of the families at the end of the Second Temple period were especially greedy and ruthless in running that business. The family of Ananias received special mention in this regard in Josephus. A characterization of these families is as a mafia, and it's not out of place here. The high priestly families had apparently become wealthy during the last centuries of the Second Temple and were were remembered as purchasing the high priesthood. These high priestly families were intent in amassing political power and wealth through the specific charge of not paying tithes and is brought against the Ananias family. I read elsewhere that they also, it's in historical records, they they took advantage of the poor and appropriated their land. So now we understand why they were so vehemently, viciously opposed to Christ. (laughs) And this description takes us back to Isaiah 5, the parable of the vineyard. Because another verse says, Ah, you who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is room for no one but you. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. So now we come to the third parable, the parable of the wedding feast, starting at the beginning of chapter 22. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Now, the early church understood all three of these parables as full-blown allegorical descriptions of salvation history and of what it means to... uh, to live in a true Christian way. They also understood the second and third parables to be eschatological, that is, about the final banquet, the Lamb's Supper. It's interesting to me that the fulfillment of his promises will be like a joyous banquet. Like the two previous parables, 
about people who did not live up to what God expects and therefore lose their place of privilege and are replaced by a a surprising group. This happens again in this parable. And it clarifies the failure of the leaders. Jesus just doesn't let up, does he? He just keeps coming harder and harder. Because he knew this was the final week. He knew this was the opportune time. So it's interesting that this new nation uh, is symbolized by a collection of people, street people, no special standing. Um, This invitation that we're going to look at invites both the worthy and the unworthy. The bad and the good people are mixed together. It's like the the parable in Matthew 13 of the the fishing net with good and bad fish. Um, It also tells us that it's wrong to judge by appearances. Now, Gregory the Great, one of the late church fathers who also was uh, a pope um, in the uh, in the sixth century, it's interesting that he saw in this parable a reflection of the church. Listen to what he says: the king's marriage feast represents the church of this time, in which. The bad are present along with the good. The church is a thorough mix of various offsprings. It brings them all to the faith, but it does not lead them all to the liberty of spiritual grace successfully uh, by changes in their lives. So yes, it invites people into the church. (laughs) We have Pope Gregory saying, but they don't all change by the gospel. It doesn't affect real change. Let's go on, verse 3 and 4. He sent his slaves to call those who've been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who've been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. St. Augustine sees in this parable a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. He says, the faithful know that the Lord's table is open to all who are willing correctly to receive it. But it is important that each one examines how he approaches, even when he is not forbidden to approach. In first century culture, there were, if you were having an event, you, you sent out two invitations. The first one was general, start getting ready, please be ready to come soon. And the second one was specific, okay, Now's the time. Please come. The the key word for this entire story is invitation. And of course, that reflects we've talked about Jesus, the inviting king. We've talked so much about the inclusive and welcoming gospel. The joy of the kingdom is captured in the picture of a wedding feast. Notice he says it's like a wedding feast. He doesn't have a parable about a funeral. The gospel call is a call to joy. Sometimes I think we need to say that to ourselves several times out loud. In this, in this parable, the, the first invitation is only to the invited people, the ones that were on the guest list, the privileged, the Jewish leaders, and, and they're expected to come and share in the feast. But verse 5 and 6, 
But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Notice his farm, his business. This emphasizes selfish concerns, not God's business. Remember Jesus when he's 12? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Now, one point of the parable is this. Those who were invited intended to come later, probably, just by implication. But at a more convenient time, they did not realize that the decision was needed right now. Now, we also have to remember this parable in its historical context. I told you that Matthew was writing some decades later, to the church, probably the church in Antioch. And in in the interval between Jesus' time and Matthew's time, many believers had gone out as missionaries and been mistreated by the Jews, some even killed. We just got to hold that context together as we look at this parable. And, And we cannot underestimate right here how much Jesus was confronting the Jewish leaders. As I I said last week when he went into the temple, he's throwing down the gauntlet. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Now, most commentators see this as as an obvious allusion to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in A.D. 70. You know, in, in the first century culture, by the way, I see this often when I'm in India or Africa, these events are so important, and, and attendance in the event was an expression of loyalty to the person, of, of friendship, of trust. Likewise, a refusal to attend even had overtones of insurrection. Now, remember, this is a parable. It's not a precise story where every detail is meant to be taken literally. We've talked about rhetoric before, how Jesus uses in the parables and elsewhere exaggeration to get people's attention. The parable warns of the consequences of rejecting God's messengers. Now, as Jesus was fully aware In Israel's past, there was a long history of rejecting the prophets. And so, in a sense, right now, Jesus is using Israel's past as a lens through which to announce an urgent warning for what was coming, for its future, against all those who oppose God. Verses 8 to 10. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The first group invited have proven themselves not to be worthy. They refused to engage in the action necessary to respond to the invitation. I'm trying to make a point here that that a true response to the gospel means uh, an action. The second group, they were like the replacements, 
<laughs> they look to be less worthy than the, than the first, but although they have fewer natural advantages, they didn't make the guest list. Here, they're willing to come and they immediately respond. This is part of why I think historically, revival has begun among the poor and the outcast. It has been that way for 2,000 years. They're willing to come. The early church understood this second group, the tax collectors, the, the sinners, the poor, the outsiders. And they understood that Matthew is making a clear point through the king's open and inclusive invitation. The gospel is for everyone. St. Ambrose said this, He made good and bad alike come into the marriage feast so that he might increase the goodness of the good and change for the better the dispositions of the bad. Isn't that interesting? So, look at the contrast between inviting everyone you can find versus the first group who were invited twice after all. It shows the great shift that occurred when the gospel went out to the entire Gentile world, where there was this incredible response, whereas it was a slow, reluctant response by and large among the Jews. Now we come to a fascinating part of this story, verses 11 to 13. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, sometimes you'll hear, well, in that culture, the, 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 the king or the host provided the wedding garments. It's, it's just not true. It's just not true. Having put that out of the way, the symbolism of someone who presumes upon God's grace, his free offer of salvation and inclusion, not coming prepared, not coming with clean wedding garment, is a derisive kind of expression. It presumes upon his grace. It assumes that there's no obligation attached to the invitation, therefore no joyous Gratitude is happening. Christostom said, listen to where you were called from. The streets, the lame and the blind, in your soul. You should stand in awe of the grace of the one who called you and let no one be dressed in filthy garments. Now this speaks of someone who says the right thing, but their life does not change. I think that's what it means by getting in, but, but not, no garment. It suggests, supposing that, that faith without any works is, is a true evidence of that, of that faith, and it's not. Matthew makes that clear through his whole gospel. This man comes in with the rest, but is one whose life produces no fruit. Therefore, at this moment, he forfeits his privilege, and he ends up just like those who never came in. To come with dirty clothes would be to show contempt for the king and his banquet. The man made no preparation to wear something suitable. It presents us with two themes, the refusal of the religious leaders to respond 
but also in the positive, the gathering of the people of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting. We're back to different water-to-wine readings of this garment. Uh, It was interpreted in different ways over the years. For the early church, they saw the garment as righteousness. Uh, St. Augustine saw it as love. A thousand years later in the Reformation, they saw it as faith, that, that, that this was uh, imputed righteousness. I firmly believe it was not, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Only more recently, and by that I mean the last 200 years, especially the last 100 years, the garment was seen as symbolic of a free gift, as something given without any responsibility. And I think this has been harmful and dangerous, that that I so much believe in the grace of God. We're doing a conference called The Beautiful Gospel because of my fervent belief. However, I do not believe in in the twisting or the abuse of this. To, To have a gospel that says it's all grace, there's no responsibility, it doesn't matter what you do. Look at how this has played out in the 21st century. Look at how there is no statistical difference in the impact on the culture of the the unbelievers and the believers. I believe where there's no attention to the holiness of Jesus, we slip into the carelessness of presumption. The key point of this verse is this. Make sure you have the right garment on. In Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, Jesus makes it clear that the the robe of righteousness is compassion. In this story, the the robe that that some put on and this guest did not put on, the robe functions the same way as the parable of the five virgins, where there were those who came with oil and those who did not come with oil and were not allowed to to stay at the wedding feast. The message is the same. Make sure you have the the oil or the right robe with you. You know, we so easily focus on what it means for the man to be cast into outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. To do that is to totally miss the point. The real issue is, what is the robe he was missing? This calls us not into some sort of imputed righteousness, which Matthew never presents anywhere in his gospel, but rather into the authentic righteousness of pressing forward in our journey of following and seeking to live the Jesus way. So I say again, what is the robe he was missing? And I say it to myself in different situations, in different seasons. I want to be a sheep and not a goat in this situation. I want to have my lamp filled with oil and not empty in this situation. I want to have a robe of of compassion in this season or situation. And then Jesus finishes with like a little proverb, For many are called, but few are chosen. The chosen are the new guests who will produce fruit, and they may be Jewish or they may be Gentile. 
Their chosenness does not depend on their racial origin or their social background, but on their responsiveness to God's call and to their readiness to do what he says. Through these three parables, Jesus steps up the confrontation with the leaders. Like the cleansing of the temple, there is now absolutely no turning back. Um, Matthew's narrative will continue to accelerate and accelerate right through to the crucifixion. I believe that these three parables need to be carefully considered by each of us, to not push them to out there to another group of people or another time in history. These parables are for us and they are for us right now. God bless you. In just a couple of minutes, Tim and I will talk a little more about this. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. So, three parables. Uh, Jesus is digging deeper with each one. Yep. And seems to be ticking more and more people off with each one, too. Um, oh, there's lots to dig into today. I'm going to have to be careful we don't go down too many rabbit trails. But uh, just before we get started with some questions that I had, I wanted to uh, just share a story. I just found this out seconds ago, but just there's a story on our Facebook page that I noticed uh, that just went out a couple hours ago um, that I hadn't heard uh, about a woman named Sheila who fled uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. Her husband uh, had been beating her and her children. They fled. They ran to uh, Uganda. Uh, Things didn't go well when they got there. Um, And Eventually, she encountered one of our teams and got into one of our programs, one of our our programs that's teaching some skills and some business. She got a small business loan after she got her training. Uh, Now she's running her own hairstyling business, and things are great. So um, I I just caught that, and I just thought, you know what? A couple things. One, uh, do make sure you're paying attention to our Facebook uh, page because there's stuff (laughs) – I need to pay better attention to our Facebook page. Uh, there's stuff Same going up there me. all the time that sometimes I'm just like, ah, I didn't, I hadn't even heard this story. This is wonderful. Um, so some really just heartwarming stories. This is the gospel in action, uh, and that's where you're going to see it. Uh, and then secondly, our skills and business programs they absolutely change lives. Uh, they bring the power of the gospel to bear on families, specifically uh, young women so often uh, who are escaping just horrific experiences and they discover a whole new life in Christ, a new kingdom life. And uh, that only happens because people give. So uh, the Impact Nations family has given so generously and uh, as a result, we're seeing lives being changed. So uh, we're seeing a lot of lives. We're seeing a lot of lives being changed uh, more than I can keep up with. Yeah. Uh, So I guess two calls to action, head to impactnations.com slash skills. You can read about our skills and business programs. Uh, You can read many of the stories. We've got an update section on all of our, all of our programs. So you can read specific stories uh, on there and then give uh, because that's what makes it happen. 
Uh, and then secondly, just make sure you're following us on Facebook yeah. uh, because there's just always great stories coming out there. So And share them. When yes, you see a story that's you a like, really good point. Share, yeah, it. share them. Say, hey, this is amazing. This blessed me. This made my day. You should read it too. They'll, our, be, they'll be better at sharing than I am. Because you say whenever I share, I mess it up. <laughs> yeah, because you've got it. You've got it. Yeah, we don't need to explain so all that anyway. <laughs> but most of you will do much better than me uh, at indeed, sharing. Indeed. Uh, okay. I uh, I jumped in here. I was so excited to get started. I don't even have my notes in front of me, so I'm going to find them. But uh, this this podcast, you used a phrase. I'm wondering if you could just help us with a, a couple of things just to clarify, because I, I want to make sure that people understand. I want to make sure I understand. Uh, an hour ago now, as you were beginning your teaching, you were talking uh, about, you used a phrase, uh, end time kingdom, uh, and talking about um, people thought, well, maybe he's, ref- or you're saying maybe he was referring to the end time kingdom in terms of who's coming into the kingdom yeah. and things like that. What do you mean by end time kingdom? What's the difference between that and the the kingdom that well, Jesus was announcing that was yeah. at hand? It's it's like um, George Hilden led. If anybody cares, uh, the Theology of the Kingdom is a wonderful textbook. Many of us would find it too dry, but <laughs> people like me, I love it. Um, th- this overlap that the kingdom has come mm-hmm. and it's breaking in and we talk about that. We just gave an example. Yeah. But it has not fully come. Yeah. And it it's in the full it's in the consummation of the kingdom. That's mm-hmm. another term okay. that for end time kingdom. That when when everything is made new, everything is restored. It's being made new, it is being restored, but there will come a moment. Yeah. His second coming. So That's the end time kingdom. Second coming, uh, new Jerusalem, yeah. new heavens, new yeah. earth. Okay. Uh, and one day we'll get into all that stuff too. Yep. Um, second thing, just to, again, if you can give us a little bit of a definition, uh, because you just didn't take the time to go into it today, but you talked about imputed righteousness and how oh, you were yeah. kind of rejecting this thought that the robe, that the, the wedding garment or wedding robe that this person was not wearing you're rejecting the claim that that was imputed righteousness. Yeah. Can you just define imputed righteousness? I'll be real, real short because yep. that's a big, big, big issue. Yep. It's tied up with justification. It's tied up with all kinds of things. But, and, and I believe that it came in response in the, in the Reformation, of course, the classic is Martin Luther, in response to distortions and, and real corruption in the yeah. church. But as is often the case, I think we kind of overreacted. Imputed righteousness says that I have no righteousness of my own, um, that I don't even, shouldn't even try, it's just insulting, that I am, my righteousness is given to me by the righteousness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've referred before to Martin Luther's term that we are all snow-covered dung. Yeah. And I absolutely not only reject that as a concept, I certainly reject that in Matthew's teaching, mm-hmm. that he is saying that when there is a renewed heart, the life changes. Yeah. Not that if you do the right stuff, but rather because your heart is changing, you will be a Jesus it's a, it's follower. It's a cause and effect, yeah. Yeah. yeah, not a formula to it's gain. It's not imputed. Well, yeah. you know, I'd be, and, and we can go on later about that, but the weakness that that has brought into mm. the, the church yeah. is, is very harmful. We'll get there one day. Um, 
Jesus doesn't pull any punches in these passages you read today. Uh, he, I mean, at one point, I, <laughs> uh, there is, I mean, it, that one parable, it talks about the king was enraged or, or the, or the yeah. host was enraged. Um, and you said, well, th- we can't take this too literally. This is a parable. But at the same time, it seems to me that a few times here, God sounds pretty angry. He's using serious language. Yeah. It's a wake-up call. Yeah. And so I think it's really important because we, we can fall into the – you use a phrase around here sometimes, you know, well, uh, referring to others, saying, well, God is love, but he's also, yeah. you know, judge and yada, yeah. yada, yada. And, and you sometimes have to say, like, no, God is love. Full period. stop. Yeah, full stop. The danger to that is that we would then think, well, he's never gets angry. But these passages, it seems to me that God gets angry. Why is it important that we hold those two truths in tension? Yeah, that's really a good question. And how do we hold those two truths in tension? It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard because you can't, you can't let go of either one. Although I do believe that the wrath of God is his divine consent. Mm-hmm. I, we've said before, sure. it's like Brian's example, kids don't touch that hot stove, they touch the stove, their fingers are burned, Brad didn't do it. Yeah. Um, but but there is a wake-up. There is a wake-up call. That's what these are really about, these parables, yeah. among other things. And so we must not treat him casually. That's why you and I talk an awful lot about, even as we gather in worship, we go to different churches, but that we're, we're wanting to, to, we want sacred space. We want the holiness of God. Reverence. I yeah. want reverence. I want Revelation 4 and 5, yeah. you know, and there, if, if we fall off too much on the other side, we lose that. Yeah. Okay. If we fall too much on this side, we have a wrong idea of God. Yeah. We think he's a judge, a scorekeeper. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that this is one of the reasons why it's really important for us to study these passages and ask ourselves the question, why is God angry? Who's God angry with? Mm-hmm. Because the uh, it would be easy to, you know, get this picture of an angry God and he's angry because you're not behaving in the right way. Or, um, or he's angry at them. Right, right, yeah. That's, that's, that's really true. alive sure. right now in, mm. in 21st century evangelicalism. He's angry at and fill in the blank as to what them are. Right. And yet those he seems most enraged with are the religious leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, having said that, this leads me to my final question. You painted a really interesting picture of the high priesthood, uh, you know, the high priest and his cronies as as the mafia, effectively, yeah. of the day, yeah. uh, which was really startling. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you, I can understand how our listeners might say, well, I'm, I don't behave like that. I, I'm not taking advantage of the poor. Or I'm not, um, you know, misusing my power or whatever. So this passage doesn't apply to me or I don't need to worry about this. What's the application for the oh, average that's a good one. average listener? Who... Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great question because I was more just responding to what I discovered yeah. and, ah, that's why they were so vehemently so angry, opposed to him. Opposed yeah. to him, yeah. that's why. Um, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't really yeah. know a good application <sighs> There's one thing I'd like to bring up mm. because I think I missed it mm. in my teaching. Uh, 
I told a story about someone we both know who was rescued out of prostitution and their life's completely turned around. And I told the story of how happy and thankful I was for this church that we had yeah. for the way they received. But I don't think I said this, and, and this is me being a bit polemic, a bit confrontational. Look at the people who followed Jesus, tax gatherers, uh, social outcasts, uh, prostitutes, look who followed him. I think we need to have an honest look in our churches, mm -hmm. in our church gatherings. If they're truly a place where, as Jesus said, you know, the prostitutes and the tax gatherers get in before you, if they are truly a place where they are welcome, then the fruit, the proof's in the pudding. Are they there? And if they're not, and if it's all kind of nice people, yep. I like nice people. <laughs> But we have to ask a hard question. Mm -hmm. As a church, as a people, are we following in the footsteps of Jesus, as certainly the early church did, yeah. without a doubt? Yeah. And and that's a point that I I missed today and meant to say, but I, I think it's very important. All right. So follow-up question to that. Uh, we've got uh, – I'm going to say our listeners for this uh, – discussion fall into two camps. Either our, some of our listeners are church leaders, they're pastors, mm -hmm. elders, uh, and then others are members of a church. Yep. Uh, for those two camps, if they look around and honestly answer that question, nope, I see you know a whole lot of straight up middle nice class people. people. Mm -hmm. uh, what do they do now? Like what? what's the... What's the next step to restructure, say we need to restructure? I meant to, didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Restructure their lives. Um, if it's a pastor, um, and you know that this is something that I I've done for more than thirty years, restructure your life so that you are with those folks. Mm -hmm. At the very least, you're down walking in the area where they are, and maybe you've got hot drinks, but but that's just the touch point so that you yeah. can begin to talk and build friendship. When they become a person and not a prostitute or a homeless guy or a drunkard, when they become a person, yeah. everything starts to change. Mm. And then that person, as you start to get to know them, then you invite them into your life, which includes into your church. Yeah. If we keep saying we should or somebody ought to, and we do not put on our coat, go out the front door, get in the car, and go, then we're going to be singing this tune forever. Yeah. How's that for specific? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I'm going to be Friday night. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah. I, how many times you heard me say this, son? I need them more than they need yeah. me. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about it this morning, coming to work. I'm excited for this. Friday night, going to be down in a tent city of the homeless. Some of them have been there since 2013, and I can hardly wait. Yeah. And uh, to our, our pastors and leaders, I would say, you know, when this begins to happen, either you or your, your congregation start inviting the marginalized in, be ready for things to It will be, be very messy. <laughs> yeah. 
very yeah. it has been I think messy this is part of the me. problem. We don't like mess, right? Yeah, I didn't like mess when when we you know we had the homeless coming in and then all of a sudden there are problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure, we don't like mess. Yeah. I think the gospel is really messy. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I encourage that. And for for pastors and leaders, something I've taught pastors and leaders in many countries around the world is contrary to what you think, the people in your congregation will not do what you say. They will do, <laughs> do what, what they see you doing. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up here and yep. you say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Uh, next week, I noticed we're kind of off. Yeah. You, you said to me a few weeks ago, I don't like the way they broke up these chapters in this section. Yeah, it just you, doesn't make much sense. Thank you, St. Jerome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he was just on his horse going to the next place. And, oh, this would be a good spot. Um, sometimes it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So uh, we finish up chapter 22 next week. Yeah, we probably and, we do. And are you beginning chapter 23? or? I think that I will be following 22 with 23 at some point. At some point. Not sure when. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> and we got a couple of guest teachers. Yes, we do. That are world class. Well, let's, let's let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, so we've got uh, two successive weeks in a row. Chapter 24, uh, our friend Brian Zahn is coming in, yep. uh, and he's going to teach on 24. Which is that whole often seen as apocalyptic, mm. you know, yeah. end times. And uh, I had uh, someone tell me he might be the foremost expert on Chapter 24 anywhere. I'll, I'll tune in for that. Uh, and then the following week, Brad's coming back. Uh, and he's going to do, you guessed it, 25. Which happens to be one of his favorite Boom. teachings. Just like that. And yeah. by the way, all right. So now I just right into another ad. Uh, you've heard us say it two weeks in a row. I'm going to say it. I'll say it every week. Uh, you got to come in May, May 11th to May 14th. Yep. Uh, the Beautiful Gospel Conference is going to be an extraordinary time. We've got Brian coming. We've got Brad coming. We've got Cherith coming. Uh, and these are three friends. Uh, they're going to be doing this together. This is not three random keynote speakers that we've pulled together. These are three people who have been teaching together, teaching this stuff together for a while now and are coming together to do this as a team really is what, what it is. We've, yep. we've got, you know, yeah, each of them will give individual addresses, but also they will be saying to the other two, Hey, what's God saying to you right now yep. in response to this? What, what's God saying to us in this moment? Uh, there will be times of reflection. Uh, there will be times for us to just gather over meals. Uh, as you know, that's a huge value of ours, uh, to just break bread together and talk about what's God showing you, what's God been saying. And a chance to go out to the poor. And a chance to, to go out to the poor. The beautiful to do gospel. the beautiful gospel. Uh, and we're going to be sharing stories from all over the world about the the effect of the beautiful gospel on lives and how yeah. lives have been absolutely changed. Absolutely. So please come. Uh, beautifulgospelconference.com. Register today uh, and save your space. It's going to be incredible. May 11 to 14. May 11 to 14, 2022. It's coming up fast, so start making your plans. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to be with you. We will see you again next week. Uh, You can find us on Facebook. Like I said, make sure you're following us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. Uh, If you're a listener of the podcast, you can head to impactnations.com slash podcast. Subscribe today. It'll get delivered to your device. Listen to that in your commute. Uh, And we're just so so glad to have you a part of uh, what we're doing here. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week. God God bless you.